Are we starting? Let's start. Let's start. So this is episode four. Five. Five. Five? Five. Four. Five. No, the Halloween special was four. You're right. You're right. All right. This Very is, good. Yeah. Very good. So, um. Let's start again. Welcome to the Murder Brunch. And this is the Murder Brunch Bunch. I'm Rachel. I'm Clinton. I'm Joe. And we're here to give you two more tales of murder and mayhem uh, and see where one killer falls on Dr. Michael Stone's scale of evil. Ooh, I winged that. Yeah. We all it can shows. tell. <laughs> Shut up! Um, we're one killer. Yeah, well, because the second one, we don't put that one on the scale. You know, there could be multiple killers in that first story. How dare you? I enjoyed the um in the middle of it. It makes it natural. I'm going to cut it out. Damn it. No, actually, I'm going to leave it in. Great. This is episode four. Welcome five. Up. Damn it. <laughs> it's episode five, guys. <laughs> it's episode five. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> listeners. Welcome to episode five of the Murder Brunch. <laughs> Someone else take over. So, do we have any biz going on right now? By the time this comes out, I believe we're going to start showing up in other podcast streaming services so if you have a friend who doesn't use apple podcasts pocket casts or spotify ask them what they do use because we'll probably be on their service joe do you have any biz i do i i want to read something it came up on my uh facebook memories thing and uh it kind of just reminded me of of who i am as a person and so i wanted to read it for everybody and it says Today at lunch with co-workers and the director of my department, the topic of Christmas trees came up. The director said he had a large tree that came in a couple of bags that were 60 pounds each and that it was like moving a dead body. So I made the comment that a body wouldn't weigh 60 pounds. Then, to my horror and without any control, I heard myself say, depends on how much you cut off. That actually happened. I know I can like see the moment in my memory very clearly. And you were new at that job. I was new at that job. It was at somebody's retirement party. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. um, We were eating... Lady fingers? Mandatory cake. (laughs) We were actually eating um, Mexican food. Mm. Like a... a, a, Buffet? Spray, yeah. A spray? I don't know. Spray? Spread. A spread of Mexican food. And it was delicious. I was sitting next to the wrong people, apparently. Or the right people. Maybe. No, they did not enjoy no, that no, comment, no. <laughs> the conversation stopped right there. Well, if you're going to transport a body, you would transport all of it, right? Or do you leave pieces behind? Well, I would imagine that if you do, like, put it in several different bags, it would be easier to transport. Absolutely. Especially if it's a grown man. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't recall that, I say famous, but now I can't recall it, but the piece of literature where, like, they have... He's chopping up a woman and stuffs her into like the fireplace so she'll fit, but has to. I don't remember. Yeah. Sorry, that's a bit of a tangential. (laughs) What literature are you reading? (laughs) Uh, This is the murder brunch. Well, well, there was. I want to know. (laughs) Scary story to tell in the dark. The one where he feeds people through the meat grinder, and they talk about chopping people up there. There's so many meat grinder tales in there. Yeah, I mean Sweeney Todd. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. We were just watching. Simpsons Treehouse Treehouse of Horror that had a... And they eat they eat the kids. There's a little Uta in all of us. Uta in all of us. <laughs> but um Don't chase me, I'm full of chocolate. <laughs> but yes, cannibalism. 
does show up <laughs> quite a bit. I love cannibalism. Yeah. Not really. I don't really. I mean, I've never partaken in long pig. That's what it's called. I know. I've been just like, ew. But who knows what the future holds with climate change. (laughs) (laughs) Or can the economy. Yeah. But this isn't a political podcast. It's a murder podcast. So let's get to some murder. Let's talk about our brunch today. Please. What did you bring today? Oh, I want to tell my drink because I brought the drink today. I want to say it last. Oh, you want to do it last? Okay. So among our usual brunch vittles, I brought chocolate bread pudding with a bourbon caramel sauce. Delicious. It was really good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Even without the sauce, it was good. Yeah, even out without the sauce. But that bourbon sauce does add a little something. So. And to go with our sweet, we had some salty, a nice charcuterie, a selection of meats, mm-hmm. cheeses, cheese curds, and some garlic <laughs> stuffed on olives. Cheese curds. Yes. Cheese and, curds. And garlic stuffed olives, which were very good. And for our drink, we had a Hawaiian prawn. For our, I'm so tired, you guys. <laughs> For our drink, we had Hawaiian punch Kool-Aid and spiced rum, which was really good. And why did we have Kool-Aid, you ask? Because we're going on a... a, Three-hour tour? A trip. (laughs) But unfortunately for all of us, Jim Jones is taking us on that trip. Oh, (laughs) no. I knew it was going to be Jonestown. (laughs) Oh, no. All right. Okay. Clint... I love going into these. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my gosh. Seriously, you don't? Yeah. Get ready. Okay, wait, wait. Yeah, just, to, just to clarify, you, you literally do not know what Jonestown is? Like, you've never heard that term before? I've heard the term, but like... And like, drinking the Kool-Aid? Yeah, you've heard of drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Oh. Yes. Oh. That's what we're about to discuss. Okay. Yeah. It's all coming back now. All right. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> Heavy. I do know this one, though. But you don't know the details. I, I know the details. Oh, you do? Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, we're all about to get a refresher. <laughs> Here we go. James Warren Jones was born in Lynn, Indiana on May 13th, 1931, in a poor family on the wrong side of the tracks. His mother was the breadwinner of the family and worked in a local factory. She was a hard-edged woman who was very involved in the unionizing of workers at the factory. So at an early age, Jim Jones was introduced to the idea of bringing people together under ideology and purpose. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's just, you know, <laughs> foreshadowing. Okay. You know, like, okay. <laughs> All right. Because they were so poor, Jim Jones always stated that he felt the outcast in the white society that he was supposed to belong to. So he turned to the other poor and outcast people in the town, which were minorities and people of color. Is that redundant? Minorities and people of color? No. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. No. Just checking. I'm a minority and I'm not a people of color. True. He's gay. gay. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho. He said he chose to attend the Pentecostal church because they were the most hated in town. So that is where he found acceptance. I am a little unfamiliar with Pentecostal. Is that speaking in tongues? I believe so. Yeah. And like handling of the servants. Okay. I believe that's Pentecostal. All right. I'm sure someone will yeah, if us. I'm wrong, I, I apologize. I just have to say, when you look up Pentecostal, number one, relating to Pentecost. Oh, thank you. That clears <laughs> up everything. That's a very good definition. That's a heavy church. Apparently nobody liked them, though. Apparently not. How could you not, though? Well, Speaking in to tongues, come on. <laughs> okay, so while in the church, she saw all the charismatic leaders, attended tent revivals and faith healing events, 
and ultimately decided that's what he wanted to be. So he decided to enter the ministry after graduating from Butler University. He started ministering in Indianapolis, Indiana, and through the 50s and 60s, he became well-known and well-loved by many people attending the church. But he preached unpopular ideals such as racial integration, so the powers that be gave him a hard time. He ultimately left to form his own church called the Wings of Deliverance, later to be called the People's Temple. Side note. Isn't it interesting that when cult leaders start out, they always have good intentions? Do you think that's because they actually have good intentions? Or is it just kind of a thoroughfare to get to the corruption and the ambition that they end up having? I believe in this instance, he actually had good intentions. Yeah. However, you can have good intentions, but if you only know one way of achieving that and that is to con people or to use people to achieve an ultimate goal and the means um, justify justify the end end justifies the means yeah there you go then you know how do you reconcile or justify that Mm -hmm. we all know what the road to hell is paved in so okay (laughs) at this time he was actually doing some good work he brought a lot of different people together different races different economic levels They would actually sit people in the church, black, white, black, white, so that everyone would feel equal. He worked heavily with homeless people and served as the director of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission in the early 60s. The church made all of these social programs for less fortunate people, like they made a daycare, they made a walk-in clinic. After he made all these programs, it would seem that Jim Jones's mental bottom fell out. (laughs) It's a weird image. (laughs) I wrote that down. I try so hard to be clever. (laughs) This is when it seems that his corruption of power happened. Okay. He starts to seek more and more power over his followers. So he starts to preach less about God and more about all the fears that people fed on. And one of As you do in religion. (laughs) True. And cults. And cults. And government. There's a very thin line between religion and cults. So, I mean, it really just depends on popularity. And one of the biggest fears at that time was nuclear war. So in 1965, Jim says, we're all moving to the Redwood Valley in California because it is the best place to survive a nuclear fallout. He said that they were going to hide in caves in the mountains or something. They stayed there for about five, six years. And then they moved to San Francisco. And by this time, he is calling himself the prophet. Oh, no. Gross. Like all cult leaders, he convinces his followers that they have to give up all their worldly possessions and give everything to him. He also has followers sign blank papers that he would later use to blackmail them if they left the church. As in, you would sign the bottom of a blank paper, and then he would type up a confession about how they were molesting their children, or they committed all these crimes, they, you know, did all these things, and... You signed it, right? Wow. He also starts performing spiritual healings, which, of course, are just hired actors or his personal staff acting out some bullshit. Then he starts using drugs, does public interrogations and beatings for quote-unquote traitors, then becomes extremely paranoid. In 1973, he starts talking about and staging false mass suicide attempts, which I didn't realize it was so early that this was a thing. Yeah, and he's like practicing them. Yeah. 
throughout all this, people are de- uh, defecting and telling reporters the truth about the cult. That would... I feel that should be a red flag for, right. for members. And truthfully, in the documentary that I was watching about this, one of the survivors of the camp, well, the commune, he said, in hindsight, I should have at that moment realized you need to leave. But for some reason, he was super charismatic. He was actually pretty good looking. He told people what they wanted to hear. In 1977, Jim Jones is drowning in accusations and social pressure that he moves his church and followers to Guyana and they all start building Jonestown there, which is supposed to be a social utopia, fully racially integrated, everyone working for each other and being sustainable. However, they were all being lied to, and in truth, the commune could not make enough food on their land to sustain the number of people that were living there. But Jones takes everyone's passport, so by the time his followers know that this is a bad place, it was too late. They couldn't get out, they were stuck, and it soon became a labor camp. And there's like 700 people there. Isn't I mean, I mean, it's a huge amount of people. Right, and there's people coming all the time more and more people and that's the thing is some of them that were interviewed were saying it's 12 hours by plane then two hours up a river then two hours on a flatbed truck and then you're there in the middle of the the jungle and so he remembers rolling up and seeing the sign and seeing the people and having that thought oh shit but he couldn't get out can't walk through the jungle right and he said that the first thing you see is a watchtower with an armed guard. That's horrifying. And you don't have your passport. You have nothing. No money. Nothing. So what's our lesson? Don't join a cult. Don't join a cult. I think that's really what we need to take from this. Listen to the people around you who are going, hey, can, can you not move to Guyana? <laughs> yeah. Listen to those people. Listen to your sister. Listen to your gay best friend. Listen to your parents. Unless your parents are in the cult. <laughs> yeah. Never let your cult leader take you to a second location. That's very (laughs) important. That's very important. Um, Okay, so where was I? Okay, November 14th, 1978, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan arrives in Guyana. He arrived with some members of the press and family of the cult members to perform an investigation. Four days later, Leo Ryan leaves with his group and 14 defectors and at that moment, a storm rolls into Jonestown. And I'm not making that up. Like, that actually happened. Someone described it as evil blew into Jonestown. At this moment, Jim Jones gives the order to have all of them assassinated. So a flatbed truck rolls up to the airport while they're waiting for a second plane to load the 14 extra people. And the people in the flatbed truck come out with automatic rifles. And just open fire on everybody. On the senator as well. Yeah. So the senator, the news people are there, and all of the defectors and the family members. Everybody's there. No one has left yet. In the shooting, the only thing I could see that was formal, it said that Representative Ryan and four newsmen were killed. However, in some of the interviews of the people who were defecting, they said that they saw their the people that they were with shot. Like a man was saying that his wife got shot. So I don't know if that number is correct. This is um, just kind of a line all that happened. So the cult moves to Guyana 
And then you said this is one of the survivors is like, it's time to GTFO. I'm grabbing 14 other people here. Leaving with the senator. Leaving with the senator. They make the two-hour walk and a two-hour truck drive, make it to the airport. Mm -hmm. He then sends people after them, which I guess it was just a really long loading time. Well, they were waiting for a second plane. Okay. Because they had 14 more people to take home. And it wasn't like it took a long time for the truck to show up. It was like they they showed Shortly up. Shortly after they left. Hey, we need an extra plane. Something. These people roll in, murder everybody. Okay. Because people were able to escape, though, by running into the jungle, Jones feared that authorities would soon come to Jonestown. So Jim Jones orders the mass suicide of everybody else in the commune. Weeks before this happened... Jones had been conditioning everybody that they were going to be attacked, that the children would be tortured and killed, the women were going to be raped, and the only choice that they would have if this happened was to to commit suicide. However, the conditions in the, the camp, I'm going to call it a camp from now on, in the camp were so bad that some people actually were relieved at the thought of just ending it. Oh, God. Yeah. Because like you had mentioned, it had be essentially become a slave labor camp right. that is not producing enough to sustain the number of people there. So I was under the impression after reading all this, because I kind of steer away from this story because there's always imagery that comes with it. Yes. And it's very hard imagery for me to process. But this, by the end, it wasn't the cult. It wasn't people, let's die for Jim Jones and let's die for this. It was people who were like, this is horrible. We're in a living hell. We want to get out, but we can't. On November 18th, after they shoot everybody at the airport, 900 people, including 276 children, drank a punch concoction that included cyanide. But not really. Many of them didn't want to drink it, and they tried not to. So they would run and get shot, or they would try to get away, and people would inject them with syringes with cyanide. They were poisoning the children through injection or squirting poison into their mouth. So just there were so many people who tried to escape and were murdered. Yeah. I mean, I would, I'm going to go ahead and say that all of them were murdered in oh, one yeah. form or another, because this is... This is brainwashing. You know, none of those people deserve to die the way they did. True. It's presented a lot like, oh, this was a cult. They committed mass suicide and now everybody's dead. But that wasn't really the case, right? It was a movement. These people thought they were doing good. And then in the end, when they're like, it is too much, it was too late for them to get out. And they did not take their own lives. Because you're right. And even, I mean, now when people use the phrase drink the Kool-Aid, that means it... It is implying that you have bought into something. And so it sounds like here, actually, when it came time to drink the Kool-Aid, people didn't and didn't want to. And That's actually interesting how we basically misappropriated the phrase. You know what I mean? Like, people didn't want to drink the right. Kool-Aid. And again. I mean, I'm sure some of them did. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, some of them were like, I'd rather die than stay here. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much like you, the original of... I'm dying for this man, and I am okay with that, and it is enlightenment. Like, it seems by this point that is less yeah, the mentality of the people. You could compare it to the Hale-Bopp mm-hmm. cult, and in that case, I believe most of those people did die for a cause. Like, they chose to commit suicide because they honestly believed nobody was being forced to do it, I guess. Yeah. They were more of, 
if you want to say consenting adults who right. decided that this was what they wanted to do with their lives. Whereas this was, this was a mass murder. Right. Yeah. Now Jim Jones himself chose to shoot himself in the face. So in the head. Um, and that's how he died. Gunshot to the head. Now no one saw him do this, but that's what the coroner has Oh, I thought decided. you were going to, I thought you were going to make a, a statement like he might still be out there. No, 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 no. He's, he is dead. Fun fact, Mm. an 80-year-old woman was sick and asleep at the time that all of this went down. So she woke up the next morning and everybody was dead. Oh my God, that's terrible. Yeah. And she had no idea what happened. Right. Because she was separated in another, like... In the, I guess, the sick quarters or whatever. And she... <gasps> that's wild. So, and I'm, I'm assuming we'll get to it, but I, how long after the event before officials or whatever did roll in and discover the body? Or... It, it was not long. Because okay. of the shooting at the airport, oh, right. that went to Guiana authorities. And so they rolled up like the next day and just found everyone dead and like seriously watching the documentary they're showing the footage from the helicopter and it is it looks like someone just strewn trash all over the ground but it's people Mm -hmm. and this is where i stop right except i want to say for all of our listeners i think it's really important to acknowledge the victims and if i could at this moment i would name all of the victims however there were 913 people who died And so I encourage everybody to go online and Google their names because 100 or 913 is a number until you start looking at the names going down the list. And I did this and I went down the list and then you look over at the sidebar and it's, oh my God, I haven't even gotten through a quarter of it because there are so many people who died in this. And I assume it must be. Like, it must run the gamut on age. Like, you mentioned there was an 80-year-old So it must be from infant to elderly that yeah. the, the, this 900 Exactly. And it's whole families died. Yeah. And because Jim Jones liked the sound of his own voice, he did recordings. And so there is a recording of the final hours of Jones, which I don't recommend anyone looking up because it is horrifying. Yeah. No, that was in the documentary, too. Yep. And, and you hear these people protesting protesting that they don't want to do that and he's trying to talk them down or something i mean like like he was in those moments i believe just pure evil i agree and that's the story of Jones. oh my god that is so heavy i can't get over the fact that like parents were doing it to their own children and stuff like that i mean it's just well even i mean like even that they had the the stories of people who weren't going to do it to their children and so their children were ripped from their arms oh god and i couldn't being there in that moment i cannot imagine a worse place like if there is a debate that hell doesn't exist hell is here on earth that at that moment was hell agreed and it's you know, normally when, when we'll do these, we're discussing a person. Um, in this case, though, this person had followers. Because you mentioned, you know, babies ripped from your arms type of thing. They were not ripped from their arms by Jim him. Jones, yeah. Like, these were people who had fully, like, we are on board. We are making this happen. Yeah, they were and, committed. Yeah. And it's one of those things that perspectives 
can be skewed, right? So he had his inner circle, and those inner circle were well-fed, and they were given the power, and they were told, well, you have this because you work hard, and you have earned this, and these people don't because they're just not as committed or as faithful faithful as you are, then you have that skewed perspective in that, well, you could be just like me. You just need to work harder. Mm. And so when these people are protesting, they become traitors. The people who left, the 14, when they left, they were having insults hurled at them the whole time, calling them traitors, calling them, you know, bastards and, and, I, I, I wish you had seen the documentary because it, it showed a lot of footage that I'd never seen before. Like they had a scene where a woman wanted to stay and her husband wanted to leave and they were playing tug of war on their kid on if they were going to leave or not. And I, and that's, it's just like, it's to get to that point. It's bizarre and yet it happens every day. Especially once they were getting to a low point at the camp, the food, the, the malnourishment, the slave labor, you would think at that point, I don't know. I mean, well, we use the term lightly, but the truth is, brainwashed is for real. Like, right. Like, cult members are often literally reprogrammed. So, and they had a PA system throughout the whole camp. And he would constantly be talking on it, constantly saying, This is what you need to be doing. This is your purpose in life. We are building a better tomorrow. It is true is that if you hear something enough, you start to believe it. And it's it's a very it's a slippery slope when you when your religion becomes zealotry. Gross. Jim Jones is gross. Jim Jones is gross. Gross. Clinton, is he gross? Very gross. I'm curious to see where he's going to fall on our scale. Yes, we're talking about, of course, Dr. Michael Stone's scale from his book, The Anatomy of Evil. We are gauging our first story on the scale of 1 to 22, 1 being justifiable homicide, 22 being, what was it again, Clinton? Psychopathic torture murderers with torture as their primary motive. The motive need not always be sexual. Absolutely. And so let's see where where Jim Jones falls on the scale. Jim Jones... I believe, falls on a level 12, which is power-hungry and cornered. This is power-hungry psychopaths who kill when cornered or placed in a situation they wouldn't be able to escape with their power intact. But there's a secondary one I think could be argued, and it's non-homicidal psychopaths. Psychopaths who fall short of murder yet engage in terrorism, subjugation, intimidation, or rape. And that's number 19? Yes. Was there rape involved in in Jonestown? There is always rape involved in cults. Not Hale Bop. I just want to throw that out there. That's but, true. Well, yeah, okay. Um, I tend to agree. Yes, I'm going to say yes because there are stories of his he's him using his coercion. Well, his status on the younger female members of the congregation. And telling them things like, oh, I'm doing this for you to get you closer to God or blah, 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 blah. Put your dick away, Jim. (laughs) Well, I I agree with category 12, power hungry psychopaths who murder when cornered, because obviously his paranoia was starting to take effect. They had murdered the people at the airfield. He knew punishment was coming. So he decided that this was the moment to do it. But he did prep the mass suicides for so long. So that doesn't feel cornered so much as like an end game. So I'm not sure if if that was the ultimate. But play. W- would he have done it if 
he wasn't cornered. He wasn't, there wasn't imminent danger to all of his, what he has built. I think ending. he, I think he always thought he would be cornered. Like he, he knew this was going to happen. Was that always his end game? Yes. This is how it was always going to end for him. Uh, why pressure? Now, whether or not, I wonder then, like, was it always his intention to die? Or is it, I'm going to do this. Until I'm tired of it, kill off all my followers, move on and do it again. Like, I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think they're they're good questions to know, like, what his endgame goal was. Right. In this documentary that I watched, they had both of his sons speaking. He had children. Whoa. Actually, he had many children because he and his first wife adopted what they called the Rainbow Family. So it was a bunch of children from, you know, they had a black son, they had a Korean daughter, you know, that kind of thing. And so his adopted black son, which is what he called him all the time, <laughs> not his black son, not his adopted son, or not just his my son. son. Yeah. yeah, my adopted black son, he was there speaking and then he had a biological son and he actually spoke on that too. And the only reason they didn't die is because they were off... A basketball game. In Guyana? I guess. Hmm. All right. So, Rachel. <laughs> yes. Back to 12. Your your thoughts on yay or nay? You know what? I'm going to go more with 19 because I do think the psychopaths driven to terrorism, subjugation, rape, etc. sort of murder. Uh, Jim Jones, we don't know if he actually killed anyone directly, but the terrorism, the subjugation, he obviously got off on that part. So, I think I think he's probably a solid 19. I would have difficulty with someone who racked up a body count uh, like this to be as low as a 12. I agree. But I do I do agree that both 12 and 19 seem to fit. And it does sound like uh, on, on 19 it mentions being driven to terrorism, subjugation, etc. like that. And it seems that he didn't start that way. This was a, I want to make a utopia. And again, I don't know, but it, it does seem... There might have been some those good intentions, some good back, intentions right. originally, um, but then ultimately just got out of hand. And yeah, I would say my vote is for nineteen. I'm gonna vote nineteen. <laughs> You're both wrong. It's no, well, okay. So here's the thing: is like I'm going to say twelve, and that only reason why I'm going to say twelve because I think I would bump him up too. However, Doctor Michael Stone put him at a twelve. What? Oh, so what was his reasoning? Did you did you read that specifically or no? I, I'm going to go against... I, but I think you know what happens is that cult leaders do often go lower than you think that they right. would be simply because it's the idea that they put in someone's head and not an action that they physically have to do. Right. And, I mean, as we've, we've pointed out before, the body count does not... It, that's how this scale is set up. Because even, like, the people who end up at the, the bottom or the higher numbers may not even kill. Like, it's about the torture and right. everything. So it's more the intent behind the actions, not the... It's quality, not quantity. Ooh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like for our purposes, I really feel like he should be at a 19. Would you want to keep him at a 12 for, for murder brunch? I can't go against Dr. Michael Stone. And so, in, in all fairness, there's, there's obviously a lot of data and info around the Jonestown stuff. And it might just be that Dr. Michael Stone believes that he, it really was the killing was not a plan. It was, it was, he was when cornered. he was cornered that it, it drove him to it. Well, I suppose he is a doctor, whereas we are just three schmoes sitting around talking. But 
I don't know. I feel I feel weird putting him at a twelve. I feel weird putting him at a twelve. Do we? Is that what we are going to do here? I'm going to put him at a twelve because because Doctor Stone says he's a twelve. However, that day may come where Doctor Stone's here and we can have a discussion. <laughs> we can have a discussion. <laughs> Let's put a little asterisk on Jim Jones at twelve and say this is what we need to discuss with Doctor Stone when he comes. All right. To the well, I mean, you you pulled the trump card, and, yeah. and that ranking clearly. Clearly overrules ours. So, Jim Jones goes on the board at a number 12 with an asterisk. Are we back? We're back. We're back from the break? We're back from the break. Okay. Uh, As I'm sure all of our listeners know, our second story is not one we can put on the scale because it is typically an unsolved murder. Just gives us a little more insight into the human condition and all that good stuff. So, for our second story... We are going to October 22nd, 1966 in Tallahassee, Florida. Oh. We're going to meet the Sims family. I'm sorry. The Sims? The Sims. S-I-M-S. Yes. The famous video game Sims family. If we could get out of 1997, Clinton, (laughs) and bring it back to 2020. No. 1966. 1966. All right. So we're based in Tallahassee. Robert Sims is the father. He's 42 years old. He's a nationally known educational computer expert. He actually works for the Department of Education in Florida. He's he's very smart, brilliant, computer expert for the 60s. That's got to be something, right? I mean, these, this is back when computers took up a whole room, right? So pretty smart. He's married to Helen Sims. She's 34 and she's secretary to a Baptist church. And they have three daughters. Virginia, who is 17. Judith Ann is 15. And Joy Lynn was 12. One evening during an FSU football game, Virginia and Judith are out babysitting. So at home is Robert, Helen, and the youngest daughter, Joy. Virginia comes home from her babysitting and she can't find her family. She walks in the house, the TV is on, there's lights on, but she can't find anyone. So she's going around and she walks into the master bedroom and there's where she finds the bodies of Robert, Helen, and Joy. All three of our victims are blindfolded, bound, and gagged. Robert is shot once in the head, and he's lying on the bed. Helen is shot twice in the head and once in the leg, and she's on the floor. Joy is shot once in the head and stabbed six times in the abdomen and legs, and she is also on the floor. Shit. Yeah. The binds and the gags were made with neckties and nylons and hose and stuff like that that belonged to the family. So they weren't brought in by the killer or killers. Helen was dressed, but she had no shoes. Robert was barefoot, but he's in slacks and an undershirt. And Joy was in a nightgown. So this is obviously like modes of undress getting ready for bed. Joy also had her underwear pulled down, suggesting sexual assault. But what's interesting about that detail is that was left out of news reports at the beginning of this crime. I'm not sure exactly why, other than maybe to temper it for the public or maybe to keep a little piece of information quiet so if they found the killers, they could use it against them. Unfortunately, it caused a schism within the police department on whether actually sexual assault took place or not. Because remember, this is the 60s. So I'm not sure if the forensic science was as far along as it needed to be to decide on that so virginia gets there and she's obviously freaked out it is the 60s though nobody calls 911 there is no 911 so her first call was actually to the bevis funeral home and this is recorded that's it just had never occurred to me that there was no 911 when when was 
on a tangent, sure. when was 911 established? 911 is actually related to the Kitty Genovese uh, story, which hopefully we'll be able to tackle at some other point, right? Mm-hmm. It was created in the 70s, I want to say. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was It was either 70s or early 80s. I think it was 70s. Where it became a national. On February 16th, 1968, Senator Rankin Fite okay. completed the first 911 call made in the United States in Alabama. Okay, so okay, late so, 60s. So this was right before that. So this is 1966. Fascinating. So so her first call was to the Bevis Funeral Home. And this is actually well documented. She said, something terrible has happened. Please come. And that's that's just heartbreaking. Russell Bevis, who is the funeral home director and owner, he shows up with his son, Rocky. And Rocky's like 17 years old. And I'm like, oh, God. And he walks into this. Well, she was 17. I know. And found her family. I know, I know. Rocky. Suck it up. Pull it together, man. (laughs) Russell instructs Rocky to unbind the victims. So there we go. We have a mark right there as far as what's being done to the crime scenes. But, I mean, obviously they do this as a sense of kindness. But at the same time. So... Even without 911, I would still think you would call the cops. And they do. The cops do show up, but the funeral guys get there first. Okay. Yeah. So when the cops do show up, and I believe they have some medic, uh, medical personnel, the parents are still alive. They find that the, that mom and dad are still alive. What? Yes. They were both shot in the head. Yes. And they're still breathing. So... Joy was killed, I guess, instantaneously, but Robert and Helen are taken to the hospital. Robert dies pretty much upon arrival, but Helen lasts nine days and then she passes away on Halloween. Knots on the binds were a specialized granny knot that um, was documented. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what that means as far as like like sailors knew how to do. I'm not sure why you they considered it. Brownie, you didn't learn your knots. <laughs> we didn't do knots and brownies. Um, they kicked you out. They kicked you out. They though. did kick me out of the brownies, so I'm not sure. Maybe maybe I missed the knot unit. You never got that bad. <laughs> Investigator Larry Campbell shows up. He's a 24 year old cop. He becomes the lead detective on this case. He's a young dude, and this is where things get a little. I, I mean, it's the 1960s. Where was this? Tallahassee. Tallahassee. You would think that they would have a little bit more going for them being that they were a state capital. It's still 1960s. It is 1960s. Nobody knew shit in 1960s. <laughs> so robbery is not a motive. Nothing is stolen. They even have like little little pockets of cash that are sitting out on dressers and stuff. None of it is disturbed. There's no force entry and the killers spent time cleaning up, making it seem like they were comfortable with the neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like they weren't in any fear of being found. They knew what the family schedule was, something like that. But of course, the crime scene was completely trampled. There were looky-loos. There were cops walking all over the place. Um, they apparently made coffee. They just did everything you're not supposed to do at a crime scene. Yeah, I know. Your your facial expressions of skepticism is... is not skepticism, but just like general shock yeah. and astonishment. I just... The idea of showing up and making a pot of coffee in the house where a murder... They like, had a lot to deal with. They needed a cup of coffee. <laughs> Um, Make a Starbucks run. <laughs> I know, I know, that was intentional. So, uh, so obviously the killers are not found within the first couple of days. They they really don't have much to go on. It was to the point where everybody was very scared about what was going on. Halloween was canceled that year. People didn't want their kids out. Things like that. I know Halloween oh, was canceled. No. Can we even imagine? Um, yes, I can imagine that. So <laughs> because we live in twenty twenty. <laughs> 
Let's talk about suspects, okay? While the cops were trying to figure out who could be the killer or killers, they were grasping at straws and they checked on everyone who checked out In Cold Blood from the local library, which if you don't know, that's Truman Capote's very famous book about the Clutter family murder and thinking that maybe someone who checked out that book could be a copycat killer and have killed the Sims family. It's a bit of a reach. (laughs) It's a bit of a reach. It's a bit of a reach. They did track down everyone who checked it out though and they all got cleared. That poor 12-year-old girl who's like, I just wanted to read a book. (laughs) I just wanted to be interested in true crime. Here's my book report. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so some of the the more viable suspects. There was a pastor that Helen worked for. His name was C.A. Roberts. Helen had resigned a few days earlier before the murder. Nobody knew why she resigned, but there were rumors it was because Pastor Roberts was a philanderer and Helen disapproved. Like he was very well known as being a ladies man. And she was this very pious housewife who who thought that would be wrong. There was also like ideas that they might've been having an affair, but all of those were cleared. All of those were cleared. In fact, Pastor Roberts was also cleared because he was at that FSU football game and there were witnesses and video of him at the game. And they did the whole time lapses. Like here's a shot of him here. Here's another shot at this time. Did he have time to get over to the house, kill a bunch of people and come back to the football game? And he did not. So he's pretty cleared. The day after the murders, a woman attempting to place a phone call on a party line, for those who don't remember what party lines were, it's basically a phone line that lots of people jump on and you could hear other people talking. You basically had to take turns to use this phone line. I know. So a Zoom. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah, Uh, I wouldn't say I remember it. I was not alive in those times, but I I know about the party lines. Okay, so a woman who was trying to place a phone call on a party line accidentally heard snippets of a stranger's conversation. Mother, I have just done a horrible thing. I have killed three persons, a young man intoned with oddly precise diction. With the rudimentary technology of the time, the telephone company could only ascertain the call had originated from one of 200 lines in Brevard County, which is approximately a five-hour drive south of Tallahassee. So while that does sound strangely synonymous to what happened to the sims it was pretty far away and it seems to be not related but that was one of the things the cops followed up on there was a teenager that lived around the corner and committed some grisly murders later in life i could not find the man's name this this particular teenager he was a teenager at the time of the sims killing obviously but he became a death row convict with florida ties and similar crimes so they went to go check on him to see if he also committed the sims murder But I I couldn't find his name and he apparently had an alibi or was cleared, but they didn't follow up on him. So the, the most significant suspect that most people think did it, I'm going to refer to them by the letters M and V because they're still alive and they have not been convicted. So I don't want to put anybody's name out there who, but if you did enough searching, you could figure out what their names are. So anyway, they were a teen couple in the 60s who had case knowledge that had not been made public. M, the girl, was 19. She was considered quote-unquote odd. She was obsessed with death. She had broken into funeral homes. And V, our gentleman in this couple, was 21 and had a history of being a peeping Tom. He had actually peeped on Joy a week before her murder. Yeah. He also had an interest in necrophilia. In the Mm -hmm. 80s, M... And V were married and M actually tried to turn V in for reward money. But V has always denied having any part in this. 
An author and historian, Henry Cabbage, had procured a copy of the interrogation tape between Sheriff Larry Campbell and M. And apparently M had made statements that had to do with um, her psychic dreams. And she had recollections. And some of the lines from these tapes were such as, I went in there and looked at that body. My God, that kid with her clothes off lying on that floor. My God, how could he be turned on by something like that? How could he be interested in that ugly little girl? I was looking at the kid lying on the floor. So these are all like, from what I can tell, they were like almost hypnotic recollections. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, and again, I don't want to say anything against police officers who were trying to do their job. And obviously I'm not a police officer. I don't know what it's like. But M says, if I, hypothetically, (laughs) if I say I was in the house the night it happened, what would happen to me? And instead of saying something like, I don't know, I'm a cop or who knows, let's see what happened. You know, why don't you tell me where you were? That kind of thing. Depends on what you did. Right. (laughs) Campbell tells her she's going to go to jail if she admits to being in the house. So of course... Mm-hmm. She does not admit to. Being I don't know. In the house. It almost actually sounds like they were through happenstance happened to be there on the night. That's because, a possibility. Like it seems the whole like the peeping tom thing and just their interest in death. Like I think that they did stumble upon details entirely. That's that is a very very possibility that they that the Sims family were killed by another person or persons, and that MMV just happened to also be in the neighborhood and went to go check it out. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, but I mean, it's possible. Right. There's also a theory that there was a cover-up done because V's dad was a famous criminologist professor at FSU. And so he had a lot of clout in the city and that he might have swayed the police force at that time to protect his son. So like I said, MMV have never been convicted of these crimes as far as we know they are presumed innocent you know that is how our country works so that is the case the aftermath of everything is that the sims murder has never been solved detective larry campbell eventually became sheriff in leon county but he never forgot the case there's a quote from him in the sarasota herald tribune in 2006 where he said, I've seen some terrible things in 45 plus years of law enforcement, but I can see Joy's eyes as clear today as I sit here talking to you. And then lastly, there's an active Facebook page regarding the murders where they're still trying to figure out if someone knows something. And apparently V comments on it. So he's interested in it. He's very interested in the the case itself, which I mean, I probably would be too if I had been accused in it or or brought up into it or, or anything like that. Or, and again, I don't know one way or the other, but imagine this scenario where, well, one, you have some unhealthy relationship with the girl and you enjoy spying on her in her home, Mm -hmm. but then one night you're spying on her and you watch her get murdered. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. Like, but almost like if that was the case, why didn't they go and say, I saw who murdered her? Right. Or maybe he went, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, there's something missing there that I feel like MMV know and they're not telling. So they, they got married in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. So did they stay married? No, well, they, you mentioned he tried to turn her in. Or she tried to turn she him, tried to turn him yeah. in. I assume they were not married after that. <laughs> I'm not sure when exactly they got divorced. They did get divorced at some point, And I think they remarried to other people. But yeah, they, they were married for some time. I, I don't know. I mean, it could be a case of like the West. Like Rosemary and Fred West where... 
they were really into doing some bad things together. I don't know. That could, I mean, that story could lead in a lot of different ways. It could be, it was him and he brought his girlfriend along for this horrible thing because he escalated from peeping to something more. It could have been her doing it all because of a jealousy thing. Yeah. And she had to... There's also uh, the point that, as far as we could tell, they've never committed any more crimes. So even if that was the case, I mean, it's it's kind of weird to see people do it once and then stop. I mean, they were flagged by the police, so maybe that would scare them enough into playing it straight. But it's just from what we've read and things like that, most people can't stop. Yes, typically the people that we'll end up talking about here. Right. It's not like one and done. It's like, oh yeah, I got that out of my system. I'm, right. I'm good. But so. maybe it was. You know, teenage hormones are something else. My own hypothesis is I think I think V did this with M's help. That's 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 what it feels like. But again, I, I'm not a cop. I don't know the ins and outs of the case itself. Right. And that would make the most sense. I'm kind of curious then about this person who supposedly heard a person who said that they killed three people in Brevard. <laughs> yeah, like, that might be worth looking into as well. Yeah. What's Brevard got going on on that night? <laughs> but yeah, so that is the that is the very, very sad case of the Sims family in Tallahassee, 1966. Now I'm going to start dislike doing these unsolved stories because I got to know. I got to know how they end. I know. The Clint, unsolved ones are tough. You're the poster boy of let's just accept mystery. <laughs> Uh, sources? Let us cite our sources. All right, my sources for Jonestown is the ABC documentary Truth and Lies, Jonestown Paradise Lost, and the Encyclopedia Britannica website. Hmm. Uh, mine were Project Cold Case. Um, there is a very good documentary that was done by an FSU student, so someone local to the case, called 641 Muriel Court. It is free to watch on Vimeo and also the popular crime blog, I did it for Jody.com. All right. That's all for us today. Very good. This has been Murder Brunch with the Murder Brunch Bunch. I'm Joe. I'm Rachel. I'm Clinton. And uh, if you want to find us on our social medias, you can check us out. <laughs> that frantic flipping you hear is Clinton trying to find the page of all of our stuff. This is what happens when you take too many notes. I've taken so many notes since then. He's been doing so much paperwork lately. So if you would like to find us on social media, you can find us at our Facebook page. Which is Murder Brunch Podcast. Twitter. Which has changed recently and is at Murder Brunch. Instagram. Murder Brunch. <laughs> And our website is murderbrunchpodcast.com. And if you want to just shoot us an email, you can reach us at murderbrunchbunch at gmail.com. Wonderful. All right, guys, we'll see you next time where we will have more mayhem, more murder, and more snacks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> you didn't do it this time. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> <laughs>